If you're tired of dieting and stepping on the scale, you're lacking energy and confidence, and you're ready to harness your inner athlete, then you're in the right place. I'm Sherry Shaban, and in each episode, I'll help you to rebuild your fitness identity and empower your deepest transformation so that health and fitness are not just what you do, but who you are. What's up, athletes? Welcome back to the show. It's no wonder that so many of us are extremely lost and confused when it comes to diet. There are so many diets out there and all of which are backed by science and promise massive results. But I'm one to believe that there is no one diet that fits all. And in fact, all these diets could be beneficial for some people. And our goal is to discover how our body works, and which diet is the most suitable for us. Today's guest, Martha Tettenberg, is a registered dietitian and certified primal health coach with over 30 years of experience working in many areas of nutrition. She currently works in long-term care with a focus on nursing homes and gerontology. Her private practice promotes a low-carb and high-fat lifestyle for healthy aging and chronic disease prevention. When Martha was diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer, she began exploring the research of the disease and discovered the science of cancer metabolism. This led her to develop and use a protocol of ketogenic diet with targeted therapeutic fasting to significantly impact her response to chemotherapy. Inspired by her own journey, Martha wants to help others see cancer differently as an experience that will give you strength, wisdom, and more love for your body and life than ever before. Martha is a featured speaker at the Low Carb Long Weekend Summit, and she shares her knowledge as a dietitian and her experience as a cancer patient to inform others about the powerful metabolic interventions that can support conventional cancer treatments. Martha also instructs courses teaching the ketogenic approach to cancer treatment for the nutrition, network and Udemy. Athletes, this is a beautiful conversation, so much science here, and this could likely be what you are looking for to help reverse something that you may be going through. Before we dive in, I want to invite you to check out some easy workouts I have for you on my YouTube channel. They're short, less than 10 minutes, full body workouts that complement any nutritional program. They're also suitable for all levels. All right, athletes, now let's get into it. Hi, Martha. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here and talking to a fellow Canadian even. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm so happy you're here and, and we're talking about a really important topic today. We're going to get into the topic of cancer, the metabolism of cancer. And now you're a registered dietitian. You are a cancer coach and a cancer doula and you're a primal health coach. So share with us your story a little bit, Martha. How did you come to this place in your life? Um, basically through being a cancer uh, patient is kind of how I got here. Um, I've been a dietitian for 35 years and uh, I had uh, practiced in a variety of different settings and ended up in long-term care, which is where I've been for the last 20 plus years. Love long-term care. But um, I also struggle with the fact that in the last 10 years or so, I've discovered that what, a lot of what we were taught about uh, nutrition is wrong. And so I have veered off the beaten path and into uh, low carb 
um, the LCHF sort of diet. So I've become a bit of a renegade as far as dietitians are concerned. Um, and I had started a private practice um, using my low carb uh, primal health coaching certification and so on. Um, about up until about three years ago when I discovered that I had ovarian cancer. So that's kind of where I was when I was diagnosed. And um, because of being a, a dietitian and being pretty nerdy when it comes to health stuff, um, I started doing some research and uh, discovered that there was a whole field of metabolism surrounding cancer that I didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what brought me to uh, writing a book and being on podcasts. <laughs> wow. So something that you just mentioned, you said a lot of what we learn is wrong, or a lot of what we learn about nutrition is wrong. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, I mean, that's a huge topic that I obviously can't get into because people have written enormous tomes about this field. But um, basically, for two and a half million years, humans have eaten, um, they, they, become, they became the prim, primate that came out of the jungle, went out onto the savannas and started hunting mm -hmm. and eating meat. Um, and it's what has differentiated us from all the other primates in that we became much more omnivorous and um, were able to uh, use the nutrient density of meat, um, particularly the fats and the proteins, to completely evolutionarily rebuild our bodies into, um, into a machine that has an enormous brain, mm -hmm. um, a much smaller digestive tract, different teeth. We use skills instead of using brawn or you know big teeth and big claws and all that. Um, so all of that is, is our history. And then about 10,000 years ago, um, we used our big brains to develop agriculture. We started with, you know, keeping the animals we wanted to eat close to us. And then eventually we started learning that we could uh, domesticate um, plants as well. And so for 10,000 years, we ate whole foods based on the things we could grow ourselves. Um, and then in the last hundred years, we've had some really non food items become part of our diet, such as um, industrialized um, pressed or industrialized oils that have been created chemically out of grains and uh, legumes and stuff like that. And, um, and refined sugars. And these things have been um, added to our diet in the last hundred years. But along with that has come um, a lot of money. And so the money is what has been um, supporting quote unquote science to look at these foods and say that they're good for us. And that's kind of the point at which I entered the field of nutrition in the early eighties when um, scientists had, who were being supported heavily by the food industry, it turns out, nobody knew that at the time. Um, they were saying that everybody should be on a low fat diet and, and that saturated fats were bad and, and meat was bad and eggs were dangerous and cholesterol was going to kill you. And, um, but you know, they had the answer. They, these, these highly processed vegetable oils that they created in factories were going to save us all. So in, uh, in the early eighties or well, be 1980, I guess, um, between 77 and 80, uh, uh, 
commission called the McGovern Commission in the US um, developed nutritional guidelines for all Americans. So everybody over the age of two basically was supposed to fall under these guidelines. And they basically said that we shouldn't have saturated fat and we should limit our, our eggs and our cholesterol and our animal products and that saturated fat was dangerous. Um, and they wanted the whole world to go on a low fat diet. And of course, with US being the superpower that it is or was or, um, in terms of, of uh, their impact, that was adopted by Canada, by the US, or sorry, by the UK, by, by every Western country and most of the um, the other rest of the world is, as well. And so everybody went on this low fat, um, more processed diet. And in, you know, that was how I was trained. It was cutting edge science when I went to university. Mm -hmm. And so my whole career basically was based on that information. Right. And um, it was wrong. And, and in the last 40 years, since that became the 50 years, I guess, since that became the norm, um, we have become fat and sick and, and, you know, the, the lifespan is decreasing and chronic diseases are going through the roof and um, all kinds of awful stuff has happened. So I realized that I wasn't being very successful. And I personally was not being very successful either fighting the same 20 or 30 pounds that I fought most of my adult life. Um, and so I, you know, I was trying things on myself. I was the N equals one experiment. And that's when I started to get into low carb, despite the, the fact that I'd spent the first half of my career trashing Dr. Atkins, you know, like every other dietitian out there. Um, I opened my, my mind to try some different things and lo and behold, it worked. I felt so much better. Right. Right. Yeah, and at that time, I mean, when they're suggesting that we should all go on this low-fat diet and start to eat all of these other foods that are low-fat, we didn't realize that all of these foods were also high in refined carbohydrates, high in sugars, right, and, and high in abnormal sugars, such as high fructose corn syrup, right? So do you feel that it was the agricultural age that created this space or was it more the last hundred years or so when we started to see more processed foods come into the market, for example? Well, if you, I mean, I'm not the expert on this. Uh, Nina Teicholz has written the book on it, The Big Fat Surprise. Mm -hmm. um, and Gary Taub's um, enormous book called Good Calories, Bad Calories right. were the ones that really opened my eyes to what had happened. But it started because... Um, because a waste product from the cotton manufacturing industry, which was the cotton seed oil yes. um, or the cotton seeds that were you know, processed out of the cotton plants um, in the American Southwest or Southeast, I guess it is. Um, they didn't, they lost their market when, you know, when um, we no longer needed lamp oil and things like that. So they, they started playing with it chemically. Um, they were using it as lubricants for machinery and one thing and another, but when they, when they hydrogenated it, it looked like lard. Mm. So, you know, how about if we try and sell this as lard? And that's what they did. I mean, it was literally about the money and about finding a new market for um, a waste product. Mm. And um, they developed Crisco and they developed this incredible marketing machine around Crisco that convinced housewives that it was better than lard that it was the new way to do things. And if you want to be a modern woman, you need to use Crisco. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so, you know, that's kind of where it started. And then 
it all went downhill from there. <laughs> um, same with the sugar. Like we just didn't have access to sugar like we do now. Um, you know, we had honey um, in Canada. Of course, we had maple syrup like in the north. Um, and, uh, you know, and there was like there's been raw sugar around for, you know, 10,000 years, but never in the, the quantities that we have now. And then when they discovered how to make sugar out of, or how to extract sugar, I guess I should say, out of corn, um, you know, and, and the green revolution that happened in the U.S. when after the war, when they started making fertilizers instead of war chemicals, and suddenly there was way more production out of the, the land than there used to be because of these uh, artificial chemicals. And so suddenly they, again, they had to create a market for what they were building or what they were growing. And so all of those things, it's, it's really a follow the money sort of situation. And it's stunning when you actually go back and look at the history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's something really important to remember that, you know, we're led to purchase certain things because of marketing and it's oh, the totally. marketing that makes us choose that. And every single time we choose that we're voting for that item, right? They're going to, they're going to make more of that stuff. They're going to introduce more of that stuff. And so it's just that realization that we are also driving that market bottom line. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can vote with your dollar. Yeah. Um, you can support you know, as much as you're able, the kinds of foods that you want, and you will support the industry that way, but you also support your own body that way. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And then conversely, if, if we support local farming, if we support food that's organic, and that is, you know, clean, basically on our plate, by the time it gets to our plate, then that's also what we end up voting for. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, so, so tell me a bit about your your journey, Martha. So you mentioned that you you got introduced to more of the high fat, lower carb prior to your um, discovery or your diagnosis of cancer. But it was that diagnosis that led you to search deeper and learn about the actual biochemistry and metabolism of cancer. Yeah, so I didn't know that metabolism of cancer was even a thing. Mm. Um, it's not anything that we learn uh, in our training. Basically, a dietitian's role in cancer, traditional cancer treatment has been trying to help the patient to not lose weight despite the side effects. Um, so we would often offer uh, commercial nutritional supplement products, the Ensure Boost, you know, those sorts of products, um, which are highly refined and full of all that crap food that we were talking about. Um, but also what we call a high energy, high protein diet. So in other words, increasing the caloric density, not the nutrient density necessarily, but the caloric density of the things you eat so that you could get more calories in with a really small amount. Right. And um, it, you know, it was, it wasn't about helping out the side effects at all, you know, or, or the effects or side effects. Um, it was about helping them to survive the side effects. Just <laughs> and basically keeping that the person alive through their process of chemo. Exactly, exactly. And when I was faced with chemo, I was terrified. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, chemo is basically poison mm -hmm. that um, is broadly targeted at fast growing cells, which is what cancer is. And the idea of chemo is to hit them with enough poison that you kill the cancer cells before you kill the patient. The person, yeah. That's basically all it is. Um, pretty broad strokes for most drugs. And, and surprisingly, a lot of the medications that they use really haven't changed 
they're, you know, they're using the same kinds of drugs they used 20, 30 years ago. Um, sometimes in different combinations and in different dosages and in different timing and things like that. But, um, but a lot of it hasn't changed a lot. And so the side effects are pretty dramatic um, for a lot of those drugs. And I am completely drug naive. I mean, I, I can probably count on two hands the number of Tylenols I take in a year. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Other than vitamin D in the winter, I take nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just try and eat pretty well most of the time. Um, but yeah, so I was, I was really afraid of what that was going to do to my body. And that's one of the reasons I kind of went down that rabbit hole of what can I do for myself? There's got to be something I can do for myself. Um, and that's what I discovered that there is this, um, this whole field of science looking at cancer as a, um, a disease process that uses fuel differently, that they have a disordered metabolism other than, you know, different than your healthy cells. And I mean, once you start talking about metabolism, you're talking about fuel. And when you're talking about fuel, you're talking about your nutrition and you're back in my, my ballpark again, you know, and it's like, holy crap, how come I didn't know about this? Well, I didn't know about it because the science got lost almost a hundred years ago. um, When they discovered when Watson and Crick in about 1940 discovered the double helix yes. and you could actually see genetic material um, and they realized that cancer had damaged genetic material, the entire um, industry, cancer industry shifted over to genetics and the work that had been done on metabolism, which was mostly being done in Germany um, in the time between the wars, between the two world wars for the most part, um, it just got lost. It got thrown on the dump, you know, the, the dust heap of history sort of thing and, and was completely lost. Mm -hmm. So nobody was talking about it. Nobody realized it until the late nineties or so when, when some people started looking at it again, and now it's a, it's a major field of science and there's some major um, research being done. And there is uh, there are books coming out that are great for the lay public to read, to kind of understand what's going on with this. Right. So, so what is the difference, then, Martha, between a regular cell's metabolism and then a cancerous cell's metabolism? Well, um, we burn energy in a healthy cell in a little um, organelle or a little piece inside our, each of our cells. So we have trillions of cells and each one has its own little engine and the engine is called a mitochondria. And inside that engine is a chemical process that breaks down um, energy molecules that we consume so that or create that could be um, glucose, which is sugar, it could be a fatty acid chain, and it could be a ketone. Um, If in in hardship situations, it could be protein like amino acids, but it seldom is. Um, we're not designed to burn our own protein if we can help it. So um, it's taxing on the body to, to utilize protein as fuel. We have oh to, yeah. Yeah. To no. And, and processes. It, yeah. it just shouldn't happen. Mm. You know, we need that protein for everything else. So inside this, um, mitochondria is this chemical process, um, this series of reactions that turns the fuel into the actual energy currency of the cell, which is called ATP. Mm-hmm. And ATP is, it doesn't matter what you're burning, what you create eventually is ATP. And that's what the cell uses for energy. So in a normal healthy mitochondria, 
one glucose molecule will get broken down through this chemical process and it will spill out um, 36 ATP molecules. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's really pretty, um, pretty efficient. Mm -hmm. In cancer cells, they have discovered, now they can look inside them, that the mitochondria tends to be um, deformed or damaged. When you look at the, the actual structure, it's not right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's broken. And cancer cells have, um, have gotten around that by metabolizing glucose in a process that takes place in the cytoplasm, which is mm -hmm. the, the fluid inside the cell. Mm -hmm. And it's a very rapid process. Um, it's called fermentation, um, cytoplasmic fermentation. And basically a glucose molecule will get broken down very quickly, a single chemical reaction, and it produces two ATPs. So it's not very efficient but it is very rapid. And I mean, we all have that present in our bodies. It's how single cell organisms create energy. So it's always there. It's the energy that process that we use if we have an adrenaline response. Mm -hmm. So if you have to like flee the, the saber tooth tiger or fight them or whatever, that's where your muscle energy comes from is from that process. So it's always there in us, but um, cancer cells use it preferentially. Um, and the weird thing is that they use it even though there's oxygen present because it's a process that doesn't require oxygen. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think about the lactic acid burn that you get when you've, you know, you're overtaxing a muscle, that, that lactic acid is the same thing that's getting created when cancer cells use cytoplasmic um, mm -hmm. fermentation. Mm -hmm. So, so what, what that means in terms of actual um, you know, your, your cancer, your life is that cancer cells are always hungry for glucose. One of the hallmarks of cancer that's been described, um, is that cancer does not have an off switch. It has no way to downregulate its, um, cellular metabolism in the face of a, um, a lack of energy or lack of fuel. Right. So it's always hungry, always, 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 always got to be glucose. It can't burn fatty acids. It can't burn ketones. Um, it has a limited ability to burn protein, um, but it's always looking for glucose. So there's extra insulin receptors on the cell, uh, the outer cell membrane. Um, it just, it wants glucose. And, uh, and if you can um, reduce the amount of glucose that's available to it, that stresses the cancer cell. Right. Yeah. So, so essentially we're talking about an anaerobic reaction that takes place in the cell right? And then realizing that in order for us to feed this cellular process, this metabolism inside this tumor cell, we need to continuously release insulin and supply the cells with glucose. And then they're able to utilize that energy immediately, almost immediately to continue to survive and to thrive. So what we're, what you're talking about here, switching into more of this low carb, high fat diet is that you're regulating insulin and then you are almost starving out these cells and, and, and sort of limiting their access to glucose. Is that correct? That's very correct. So there's a, a researcher in Boston, Dr. Thomas Seyfried, who kind of wrote the book on this stuff and has done a lot of the original research. And he, he calls it his press pulse theory. So you apply pressure to the cells, you make it uncomfortable for them to, you know, grow happily the way they want to. 
um, by keeping blood sugar low and by keeping insulin low. And we should say for anybody who's not aware, you can't have zero glucose and you can't have zero insulin that way you die. So, you know, it's a matter of keeping it low and stable. Um, and the reason that glucose spikes in your blood and the reason that insulin spikes in your blood usually is because you have consumed a high carbohydrate meal. So if you can avoid doing that, you're golden in terms of these cancer cells. Dr. Seyfried's theory says that if you can apply this pressure and make the cells kind of unhappy, then you pulse them or you hit them with something and the, whatever you hit them with, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation or hyperbaric oxygen or whatever, you know, treatment you're using, it hits them harder. In other words, they are susceptible to more damage and you get enough damage in a cancer cell and it will die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this press pulse theory is, is kind of what I was going on when I was looking at how do we keep carbs really low? The other thing, though, is that when you keep carbs really low, your body will produce ketones um, from fatty acids. Your liver makes this this water soluble sugar substitute called ketones. And the parts of your body that like burning sugar, that preferentially burn sugar, like your brain and your red blood cells and stuff, they can all live on these ketones. And one and a lot of it, like your muscles and stuff are all very flexible. They're happy burning ketones. Yeah. Your brain is actually really happy burning ketones. Um, so if your carbs are so low that your body's making ketones, then your healthy cells have fuel. It's not a problem. Cancer cells are stressed. Healthy cells are happy. And that's where the whole, um, fasting during chemotherapy thing came from Mm -hmm. there's been research done that's you know on everything from like single-celled organism through worms and and through mice and 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 case study reports on people that um if you can keep the ketones really high and you can fast you can actually um improve chemotherapy side effect um symptoms, like how, how badly you get affected by the side effects of chemotherapy, because when you fast, your healthy cells know how to slow down. They mm-hmm. downregulate, they calm themselves. They go, I call it stealth mode. Mm-hmm. And they go into this quiescent state where they start, you know, cleaning up extra junk around. They'll burn extra proteins, damage things that are in their own cells and stuff. We call that autophagy. Yes. Um, and, uh, and they will just stay in this sort of low, low process state burning ketones if you know, um, until fuel comes back into the system. Once you get that GI signal that there's fuel in the system again, they will fire back up. Mm-hmm. But what you do when you do that is you um, make your own cells almost invisible to the chemotherapy because the chemo is designed to find this, the signals of high metabolism, because that's what cancer does, doesn't turn off. Mm -hmm. And if you can keep your, your own cells quiet, then it's like the can't, the chemo chemicals just kind of pass them right by and you don't get the side effects the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had read about it and I decided I did all the research. I set up sort of a protocol for myself that involved fasting around each of my actual chemo treatments. Mm -hmm. And my, um, my success was just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I had six, six rounds of chemo, um, uh, paclitaxel and carboplatin. 
And the expectation was that each one would be a little rougher than the one before and that I would get, um, you know, mouth sores, possible peripheral neuropathy, where like nerve damage in your fingers and toes, um, all, you know, nausea, like throwing up, all that kind of stuff. And my experience was zero vomiting, almost no nausea, um, no mouth sores ever, no peripheral neuropathy ever. Um, I had about four days when I had kind of low energy, I called it. Like I was never horizontal. I was never like in bed all day. I never missed a meal unless I was fasting. In fact, I never missed making a meal because in my house, that's my job and I like it, right? right. I like it that way. So sometimes it was just, you know, get out of my armchair or my, I had a recliner, um, get out of my recliner, go make, you know, bacon and eggs or something, and then climb back in my chair. But I never, you know, I, I was always at least functional and it would take four about four days for the initial effects of the chemo. And then on the fifth day, my energy would start rising up again and I would have two weeks of almost normal. I mean, I was bald, but I mean, it was normal. Right. Um, I still had, um, I still had the second week symptoms of chemo, which is things like hair loss. Um, the other thing that really gets hit with chemo is your bone marrow and your bone marrow is where your body produces all the blood components like hemoglobin and white blood cells and, and your immune system. So those things would get depressed, um, after each treatment, but they always bounce back every treatment, they would bounce back up to an adequate range, not normal, but an adequate range that I could then have my next chemo without a problem. And I never required an immune booster or anything like that to, to help keep those up. Wow. So that's, that was amazing. And that's when I got really angry, almost that other people didn't know this. Right, right, right. There's these things you can do for yourself that are so empowering and so effective how come nobody's telling us this stuff? Right. right. So, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, Martha, I love how you explain it. You explain this so, so well, so, so powerfully. And, and, you know, one, one big takeaway from, from what you're saying is that you're not saying do this or do that. You're saying do both, you know, mm -hmm. in conjunction with your chemo treatment, do this. And here's why. Right. And I think I shared with you before we started recording, I lost my mom in 2019. She from from cancer. And when she was first diagnosed, I also went on a rampage of research. I just wanted to learn everything. And the first thing that came up, of course, was the ketogenic diet. And it explained, you know, how the tumorous cell prefers sugar and it has, you know, this tendency to want sugar. And therefore, by controlling the amount of sugar intake, there can there can be an impact maybe on continued growth or maybe even on the rate of, of growth. Right. And so this was something that I introduced to my mom, I introduced to my family and, you know, and I even told my mom, let's go, we'll do this together and, you know, we'll support each other and all that. And one of the things that, you know, really came up at that time was just this, this resistance from my brother and from my parents who were both doctors. So I've got come from a line of doctors and their response was, you know, cancer, it's like a parasite in the body. It doesn't matter. It's going to eat everything. It doesn't matter what you take away. It doesn't matter how you change your diet. Cancer is just, is, that's what it does. It just is a bulldozer and, you know, prioritizes nutrients for itself. And, you know, by changing your, your diet, it's not going to do anything. And so there was so much resistance and me too. I was very frustrated. Like, why can't we just try this? Why, and why don't, you know, read? Because there's so many scientific articles that prove that this works, right? So why, exactly. why don't we do that? And that's, that's my ultimate question is why is this information not readily available to us? 
Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I'm hoping that it will be with time. But you know, what we have traditionally worried about more than anything else with cancer is helping people not lose weight. Right. Because the the end stage of that process is called cachexia, where the body is in such an inflammatory state that it is literally eating itself and muscles disappear and, and more people die of cachexia than die of the actual cancer. And so we have been terrified of weight loss. And of course, keto diets are supposed to be all about weight loss. So there, there's that, I think, um, preconceived notion that it, that a keto diet is going to, um, you know, cause people to lose weight and not support, you know, weight maintenance. Well, I can tell you, I did not lose weight mm -hmm. through my entire treatment. I stayed on a keto diet strictly for the five months of my chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. I don't live on keto all the time. I, I live a, a moderate, low carb, mostly whole foods, locally sourced as much as I can. And, you know, Canadian winter, obviously I buy vegetables, but, um, but I don't live in keto. I, I probably skirt around the edges of keto, but I don't live in keto. But for that five months, I was strictly in ketosis. And then I fasted for the 72 hours around each of my chemos. And during that time, my ketones went way up because of the fasting. Um, Growth and hormone also goes up while, while we're fasting. Yeah, right? all kinds. Yeah, all kinds of good things happen. Um, but the main good thing was that protection of my healthy cells, right? So, and it was a supported fast. It's not like I, it was a water only fast. I had coffee, tea, um, bubbly water, bone broth. I had a couple of, usually over the course of three days, I might have about two or three cups of bone broth just as a meal alternative and as a good way to get salted. Right. Um, so, you know, it's not like it was a nothing food. Um, but I really think that what you were probably experiencing and what, what a lot of us who have been in healthcare have, have always been worried about was, you know, preventing weight loss mm -hmm. because we see cachexia and cachexia is not about the number of calories you get in. And that's another thing we never learned. Um, cachexia is an inflammatory metabolic process that, that is outside of just how much, how much you can fuel your body. So you can throw all the insurance you want. You're not, you know, if someone is cachexic, it's, it's, it's about something else. And uh, it's not, it's not really clearly hundred percent figured out yet, but it is definitely not, you know, it's, and, and if anything, a keto diet is anti-inflammatory. So, um, you know, the, the whole inflammation piece of cachexia too is, is lessened with a keto diet or, or at least a whole foods type diet. Right. Right. Yeah. I think one thing also that you, you've been sharing um, many times throughout our discussion so far is that keto is not about no carbs it's about low carbs and it's about the right low carbs and so that that becomes really really important like to your point you cannot stop the release of insulin and you cannot stop the ingestions of, of carbohydrates so um that's just something to consider you know one thing we spoke about before we started recording is you you mentioned how cancer cancer is you and, and you mentioned yeah. how you have to love yourself and you have to love your cancer if you want to heal that and that was so deeply powerful to me I, I really really felt that when you said that can you share a little bit about that I sure can um so I mean when I was trying to come up with the title for my book I was trying to explain the um emotional spiritual self-empowerment sort of part of process of of having cancer um, cancer really hit me in my identity very hard. 
because I had um, always been very smug about the fact that I was such a healthy person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was 58. I took no medication. I was, I was running. I was, I was really like, I was happy in my life. And then um, other than the, you know, little bits of jiggly fat, I was happy in my body and everything was great. And then I got cancer and, you know, damn it. Like I'm not supposed to get sick. <laughs> So I, one of the things that I determined early was that I was not going to be a victim of cancer. I was not going to accept that, um, that role. And I was not going to accept pity. And I was not going to be a warrior. I I didn't want that warrior mentality because being battle ready all the time is incredibly stressful. It's like a, it's an, you know, adrenaline sort of situation. And, and, and I didn't want that. And I, and it implies that you're angry and I didn't want that either. So what I really came down to was learning to, um, to love my body and, and apply love to myself. And that's a hard thing, especially for women and especially for ones who have spent their entire life, you know, looking at the jiggly fat on their lower abdomen and kind of, you know, not being happy with themselves. But the other thing that I really kind of had to internalize as part of that is that cancer is not a foreign invader. And people think it is like your family, right? They they use the term parasite. Mm -hmm. Cancer is your own self. It's your own cells. They have gotten misguided. They've gone down the wrong path. They've got some damage to them, which has sent them off in the wrong direction. But cancer is still yourself. Unlike parasitic things or bacterial infections or whatever it is you and so I I liken it to the Marie Kondo thing you know that that cleaning up guru she says you know if something in your life doesn't spark joy thank it for its role in your life and let it go and that's kind of how I approached the cancer it's like having cancer has sent my career and my life and my purpose off in this whole new direction that I never had before and revitalized my passion for nutrition and health and, you know, our, our own self-empowerment because, you know, almost 60, I was kind of getting tired of what I was doing, but I was ready to, you know, thank you for that, but you can go now. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And so every, every day, I just, I, I am so full of gratitude for this, this wonderful, healthy body. I mean, I was, I was diagnosed at stage one ovarian cancer. Thank God, because 75% of women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer are diagnosed late stage, and therefore it's considered a very deadly cancer. But the cyst that I had in, on my, that my ovary just turned into one big cyst, basically, um, was so huge that it couldn't be ignored. And for that, I am so thankful. Um, now, I, we didn't think it was cancer. It was ruptured inside me. So it was considered a spill, even though it was stage one. That's why I ended up having chemo. Um, but I still, you know, I still think that, um, that it was... It, it was myself and I needed to, I needed to love myself mm. and to approach life from, um, from gratitude, despite the cancer. Oh, that's so powerful. That's so powerful. And I love that you said that because it is a part of us. Every injury that we have in our body, that's our body, 
right? Every time something goes goes wrong in our body or we even feel stress or we feel that something's not right, it's, it is our body and it's just that reminder that we forget to give love because we're always so critical and we've always been so critical and there's always something that we want to change and it's never enough. But yeah. that moment where you realize, wow, this is a gift and this gift is here because I have a purpose and the purpose is to help others and to really share this message. Um, that's very powerful, Martha. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. It's a message I want to get out to people because as women, we've always, well, number one, we don't listen to our bodies well enough, which is one of the problems with ovarian cancer. They call it the cancer that whispers. Mm -hmm. Um, And the symptoms are nonspecific because our ovaries are buried so deep inside our body. They are the most precious jewel of your body. They are the new life and therefore they're, they're buried deep inside Um, but when problems come along, women just kind of figure it's just our lot in life, you know, it's menopause, it's, you know, whatever. And, um, and we really, we need, you know, I had inklings before I actually found the bulge. I just was kind of ignoring them. I just kind of figured it. I don't know what this is, but it it can't be anything. Um, yeah. So (laughs) it's surprise, surprise. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and with the audience today. I appreciate your time so much today, Martha. And and so if somebody wanted to reach out to you or to find your book, where can they go to do that? The book is called Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting, and a Kick-Ass Attitude to Power Through Cancer. And it's available on Amazon, all the international platforms. Um, It's also available through chapters in Canada or Barnes and Noble in the States. Um, It's available as both an ebook on Apple books and so on, um, as well as a print uh, paperback. And um, I have a website where I have the blog and the blog's full of recipes and, uh, and my, um, impressions, um, my, my own journey and the things I've learned as I've gone through. Um, it's at marthatettenborn.com. So it's just my name, marthatettenborn.com. There's links there for the book sales. There's a whole page of articles that support um, this approach to uh, cancer and to chemo adjunctive therapies. Um, and, uh, if you sign up for, if you put in your email address, you can download the, the chemo fasting protocol, which is the actual protocol for the fasting that I use during chemotherapy. It's a, it's a free download. It's also the first blog post that I ever wrote. So, I mean, it's on there for free. Um, a lot of the recipes that ended up in the book are also on the website for free. So whatever, whichever way it works for you to use the information. I, you know, I, I wrote the book to get it out to lots of people, but a lot of stuff's just on the website as well. Cause I just want people to know that they have this power. Mm. So beautiful and so generous. And thank you so much for being on the show today, Martha, you are such an inspiration. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall in Love with Fitness. Whether you're already on your fitness journey or just getting started, we're in this together. Just head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review, and you'll be entered into the drawing to win my six-week transformation course. Then go to fallinlovewithfitness.com and get your free gift from me so you get back your energy and reinvigorate your life. 
Join me on the next episode and remember, you are an inspiration.